Yes, it is hard to believe. I know because I say it every week. It's January 10th. It's Monday. I'm Guy Adami, joined by Dan Nathan, and you are watching Market Call Charts every Monday live at 11 a.m. We're going to break down the most important charts in the market according to us, but more importantly, according to the chart master himself, Carter Braxton Worth of Worth Charting. Today's episode of Market Call is brought to you by FactSet, financial data and analytics powered not by yesterday, not by today, but by tomorrow. And of course, our friends at Open Exchange, because come on, let's face it, they manage virtual meetings that matter for the top companies around the world. Carter will be with us in just a second, but we got to start with what's going on in the market. The sell-off is pretty precipitous, and it comes as some pretty big events coming up this week, Dan Nathan. How are you, by the way? Hey, I'm doing great, Guy Diamond. Yeah, I mean, to start a Monday off like this after the volatility we had in the stock market last week is pretty interesting, especially when you consider the fact that we got a lot coming up. You just mentioned a couple of events. We know that Fed Chair Powell is going to be in front of the Senate tomorrow morning for his confirmation hearings. And, you know, you and I have spent a lot of time, I feel like, talking about this, whether it be on the market call or on Fast Money, is like, you know, what will the Fed do in the face of a stock market that's going one way or the other? You know, when they did an about face and got really hawkish over the last few weeks or a couple of months or so, we saw a stock market that was raging higher. We saw prices of goods and services raging higher. They got really turned around, you know, that whole use of transitory for the better part of the spring and summer about where prices and of goods and services were going. All that being said, guy, I'm not so sure they don't have it wrong this time around here. So what does Fed Chair Powell do? Is the market pushing him around the stock market that is? Well, in October of 2018, when they went on a very similar course of action as they are now, the market proceeded to go down 19.9% in a straight line in a month and a half, two months. And they got spooked by the market. They got spooked by the market. But also remember, they were being browbeat by the Trump administration at that time, saying every single day, you know, the Fed has got it wrong. They should be lowering rates, all those different things. And I think they finally just sort of acquiesced. It is different this time, only in so much as inflation is clearly a problem. Now, not up to me to talk about it. Now, a lot of other people, a lot smarter than I am, are talking about it as well. And you go back, I want to say a month, month and a half ago, James Gorman, the CEO of Morgan Stanley, came out and said that they need to act and they need to do it regardless of market. And the market's going to be, if it's collateral damage, now I'm paraphrasing, so be it. They shouldn't be a slave to the market. And if the market does go down 10, 15, 20%, you know, I don't want that to happen. I understand that 99% of the people are long stocks. They don't want it to happen. But I think it's just it's just sort of a byproduct of what they should have been doing all along. So they have it wrong this time? No, their timing sucks. But what else is new? They've never been particularly good at it. And if I sound a bit exercised, it's because I am, Dan Nathan. Yeah, I just don't think, you know, I was talking to our good friend Danny Moses, who's our co-host on On The Tape podcast that drops every Friday. Check it out, people in the podcast stores, about what he thinks that Fed Chair Powell may do. You know, we had those Fed minutes from the last meeting that came out last week, and the stock market took a leg lower on what appeared to be further hawkish sort of commentary. I just don't think that he is going to change his tune a bit and be a little more dovish tomorrow. It just kind of removes all sense of credibility as he's kind of faced, you know, with these lawmakers who are going to ask kind of generally kind of stupid questions about what they're going to do or not do. So to me, I think the most important thing is we have a headline up here that Goldman now is predicting 
four rate, uh, rate hikes this year. And that's one of the things that might get the market going or a little bit spooked. And we're seeing high valuation names, high growth stocks just getting absolutely schmeistered today, guy. The ARK ETF, a new 52-week low, seemingly goes down every day. And it's interesting. I'll submit this, and I'm not suggesting I'm right at all, but I think there are people out there hoping that you might get a more dovish Fed pal tomorrow in front yeah. of this, you know, Senate. I guess it's some sort of Senate confirmation hearing or something. I think you'll get anything, but I don't think they're concerned about the market. I think most of the politicians are probably rightly concerned about inflation and how we're going to combat it. So we'll see what takes place. But to your earlier point, I don't think they're going to change course anytime soon, by the way, nor should they. And we have earnings this week as well. I mean, just to go on top of the Goldman Sachs four rate high six year, we got bank earnings at the end of the week, which are going to be fascinating in so much as... Will valuations matter in terms of price to book? JP Morgan, which is obviously loved by everyone, is trading at a huge premium in terms of the rest of banks, in terms of price to tangible book. We'll see if the market self-corrects on the back of some of those metrics. Yeah, you just mentioned Morgan Stanley CEO Gorman and some of the advice that he had for the Fed a few months ago. Here, you know, to me, what I think is going to be most interesting is some of the commentary out of the um, out out of the CEOs and and what what it really means for rates, if you will, um, because you know, again, I think that most of these banks, the money centers in particular, like the idea of higher interest rates to help their net in interest margins at a time where we are going to see a deceleration in capital markets activity. It just has to happen. If you remember back to Q1 of 2021, we had all of that SPAC issuance that I think in that quarter alone was greater than the prior 10 years of SPAC issuance. So all of these new companies came to market. When they come to the public markets, there's a whole host of other activities that happen. I just think that's going to decelerate a great deal. So I'm really looking for to see what these CEOs have to say. What's your quick take on rates here, Guy? We have the 10-year at 1.8. You know, you have the two-year nearly at 90 basis points here. So we had this we had this narrowing yield curve, and now we have it steepening a little bit. What's your take, real, right? Well, right the 10-year's finally starting to catch up with what's been going on in the two years. So yes, you're seeing it steepen, which I guess is giving people some sort of, I don't know, solace or, or so, because a flattening yield curve would have been continued disaster. But I think it's just a matter of time. I think the two-year yields are going to continue to grind higher in a faster pace than the 10-year. I think it's just a catch-up now in 10-year. I've been pretty steadfast in this, incorrectly, but now with 10 years of 1.8, you know, I thought we'd end 2021 north of either side of 2%. That was wrong, but here we are approaching it. 1.8, you know, that little, those red parallel lines that you've drawn, that's the danger zone, I guess, for you Top Gun fans out there. And the highway to that danger zone is taking place right now, so... I think we're going to test it. I think we're going to take a look and we'll see what the market does if and when we get there. I think the best case scenario is we go to 2% with the two-year maybe flattening out here around this 85 basis points. I think the more likely scenario is the two-year is going to be north of one and the 10-year is going to be either side of two. So we'll see what happens, Dan. Well, listen, you know, Maverick had to learn this the hard way. And really, the sad part for Goose was that, you know, below that, you know, below the hard deck is the danger zone here, guy. And so to me, you know, I think that we probably see some good, healthy resistance if we were to rally another 10 or 15 basis points here. All right, listen, speaking of danger, let's bring in Carter Braxton Worth of Worth Charting here. He joins us, as you said earlier, guy, every Monday live at 
11 o'clock to break down some really important charts. Now, he had a tweet this morning from Worth Charting from his Monday morning note. And he was talking about, and I had to Google this, and you probably know this word. He was talking about that nettlesome internal trend line in the S&P 500. Carter, welcome to Market Call here, buddy. We've Carter clearly unmuting himself as we speak. You'd think by now he would. Yes. Uh, oh, yes. Here, this is I a mean, double header. Unbel- I did that last you week. Know, you're, you're, you're <laughs> in a, you're, it your it, inability to hit you know, the authentic. mute button hey, is hey, nettlesome, hey. okay? That is causing annoyance or difficulty for me. Yes. So trend lines are important, just as you described. And let's look at some trend lines. But what we know is that certain trend lines are breaking, certain ones are holding. Look at Moderna, nothing to do with what we're talking about, but it's holding exactly where one would hope. But here is a trend line that matters. This, not manipulated or adjusted to fit, this is the internal trend line, if you will, that connects every peak in the S&P since the financial crisis low. And we literally are up against it and we're struggling. In principle, one of two things happens. You either can walk up the line albeit without much vigor, as happened in 2014-15 before we came apart in 16 or early in 2011, or you hit your head. But what you don't typically do is surge right through the internal trend line. So one, we're at a difficult level. And two, we are struggling at that level. Not random. Those arrows are precisely drawn. The line is a mathematically line that connects those tops. It's not a great juncture to be at. No, it's not. And, you know, I know you have views on where this potentially could go in terms of your downside target. I'm with you. I mean, you know, the picture's worth a thousand words, as they say, Carter. And this picture is telling the story. Each time we've gotten to this level, we failed. The question is, you know, where do we fail to? You know, my sense is the 200-day moving average, what they think comes in around 4150 or thereabouts. What are your thoughts? I think that's fair. Or, or, or said differently, it gets to the etymology of the word correction defined in that is that something is incorrect. If, if you're correcting, correcting course, correcting, taking corrective measures, corrections are good. And there is no definition, this whole nonsense of 10% of correction, 20% of bear market, that's not written in any book. No one knows where it came from, and it has no bearing or basis in fact. What we do know is dips, sell-offs, pullbacks, declines, corrections, drawdowns, whatever word one wants, are a part of uptrends. And we're long overdue for one of those. So, Carter, let's talk about some of these big components over the last few weeks. We've definitely talked about the concentration at the top of the S&P 500. We know about five names make up nearly 25% of the weight. And I'm looking around here and I'm seeing like a Microsoft, which, you know, last year showed really good relative strength to its mega cap peers. I don't think it had a peak to trough decline of greater than 8% or so, while Apple had one that was 20%. Amazon had one that was pretty healthy, too. So, now it's down about 8 or 9% on the year. It's down 12% from its November highs. It never confirmed the new highs in the S&P or the NASDAQ as one of those larger components. What is your take versus market cap weight versus equal weight major indices right here? So what we know is actually the equal weight basically kept up with the actual S&P, which is cap weighted over the past 12 months and even outperformed ever so slightly. And so one does wonder, is it really dependent on the top five, 10, 15 names. At certain junctures, it is. What we do know, and this is the most important thing, that during the COVID plunge, right, which is, forget that it was COVID, that it was a period of real duress for equities, those super cap marquee names were outperformers. And that is, that is the conundrum. If and as the market really gets going to the downside, do we want to favor some of those sort of 
high growth, what's called defensive names, or do we really want to stick with the cyclical bet? Now, here's the thing. People are betting that cyclicals are better, and they've been better, okay, for two weeks. But there's almost no instance in history where when you get a real route in equities in the stock market that banks or other cyclicals do better than the market. And you'll see that today. Look, I mean, rates are at 1.8. Banks are holding up well. But I mean, again, if and as we're on the cusp of something generally to the downside, you're not going to get any safe haven out of being in a regional bank. And here's another bit of a conundrum for the market. It comes in the form of the Russell 3000, which you brought another chart along with you. Do higher rates suggest the economy's doing better, which be supportive of small cap stocks, the most economically sensitive, or it suggests that inflation is out of hand and you know there's a problem with the economy and we're going to find out. But it's going to come in the form of this chart, which, by the way, looks eerily similar to that S&P chart you just brought us. Yes, and it is similar because obviously the correlation between the S&P 500, the largest stocks in the Russell 3000, and because they're both cap-weighted, necessarily is very high. But what's important about the fact that they're the same is that this is 98% of the investable capital in the United States. So this is it. This is the broadest aggregate we have. And it, too, is up to the penny and faltering at its internal trend line, in effect, since the financial crisis low. Food for thought. All right. So we got to talk about. All right, so that's really, you know, weighs in on that whole notion of breath. And I think it's a really important point that you made about the S&P 500 versus the equal weight. And then you take this indice or this index of 3000 stocks, nearly 100 percent of the investable equities there. And you see that you have similar sort of performance. Let's look at this NASDAQ 100, though, because this is one where, you know, again, five or six names make up nearly 50 percent of the weight. This thing has had greater peak to trough declines than the S&P 500. Carter, obviously, some of those names when they start moving they can kind of if they all start going in the same direction look at those we had a big one back in q1 of 2021 nearly 12 and a half percent and then they all got a bit smaller eight seven and a half percent or so here well here we are we're contending with that uptrend what is your take you just gave us a sense of kind of sometimes it's good when you're kind of concentrated in a handful of names and sometimes it's bad you know when you look under the hood though in some of these names in the nasdaq 100 the much smaller market cap ones but considerable market caps we've been talking about an adobe that's down 30% 30% you know, from recent highs. That's a $250 billion market cap. And then some of the smaller ones are down 50% and not so, you know, Square is a $100 billion market cap. It's down 50% since August. What is your take on the NASDAQ 100? Because to me, this really holds the key to the broad market near term. Right. So you've got a lot of dispersion, right? You've got stocks that are down 30, 40, 50%, and then those that are basically unharmed for now, Apple. I think the first thing that's important is if you were just passing by, and this was a billboard on a bus, or you just saw this at someone's screen because you were walking over to the coffee room in your office, the first thing you'd have to wonder, wouldn't you, is, wow, that's a hell of a hell of a line. It's a virtual 45 degree angle. And whatever that thing is, is that a stock? Is that a currency? Is that a commodity? It is bounced off that line every single time. And so that calls to the question about the very point of this segment, what we're doing now. Is it, does it bounce there because the, the PE was at a certain level and then all of the players decided the market was cheap and NASDAQ 100? Did it bounce there because of the enterprise the EBITDA level, the price? No, it's because it's all about technicals. It's always been about technicals. And here's the thing. This is the first instance in 18 months where we're now at risk of breaching the line. In fact, today we are ever so slightly below the line. It's worrisome. 
Yeah, so would you suspect that you probably find some really good support near that September low in the, in the NDX there? I know that you look at the 150-day moving average. That would seem like a level where if we were to get down there, I think you're probably talking about a 15% peak to trough decline. Is that where you'd probably look to say, all right, this is probably a little overdone? Right. So if, if you were to take away the line, we would characterize that chart as a series of higher lows and higher highs except that was interrupted, wasn't it? That last high didn't make a new high. And now the next low is in play. So just as you've implied, if and as we were to get to the September low, which is considerably lower than where we are now, one would have to think oversold, yeah. if you will, play for a bounce. Yeah. And one last thing, you know, Carter, I keep getting a lot of questions about some of these tech stocks, these these products and services that we use every day. Maybe it's a Twitter or a Snap that are down 50%, you know, just in the last, let's say, you know, nine to 12 months or something like that from either 52-week or all-time highs. Some of these stocks have absolutely gotten bludgeoned. Look at like a Zoom at 165. I think it traded as high as maybe, I, I don't know, 450 or something like that. Do you start picking at some of those devastated names that have kind of come into their valuations where the stories are just so hated? Like, where do you go first when you want to kind of say, I'm getting back into tech here? Well, there are two approaches and it's always the same, independent of whether it's tech or anything. Do you favor relative strength or do you go after things that are maybe so bad they're good? And those are diametrically opposed. I think you construct a basket that's got both. So it's, it's doing Apple for sure things that are holding up well. And then it's also finding something like a PayPal that's down so much and others where you say, hey, look, this is an instance where I better take some risk and make it. So barbell it. It seems like every three months we get earnings. I don't know. I mean, it's just one of those things that happens. But we got them this week and we got them in the form of banks. You know, it's interesting. Decade or so ago, banks were far more important in terms of waiting to the broader market than they are now. But they're still an important, I think, bellwether barometer for sort of the health of the consumer, markets, economy, those types of things. Well, Friday, we're going to hear from J.P. Morgan City and Wells. we got Goldman next week, Morgan Stanley the Wednesday after. Really interesting here, Carter. I know you look at the banks. Any thoughts in terms of their meaningfulness to this yeah. market? Right. So they're exhibiting tremendous relative strength to the market. Not so much that they're doing all that well. It's just that the market, which is so dominated by those marquee tech names, is under a bit of pressure. The real question is it gets back to if and as we're on the cusp of something more meaningful to the downside for equities as an asset class, are these banks going to offer a safe haven? No chance, right? They're, the, they're sort of the transmission mechanism for the economy. And the risk is that they come under pressure. It's worth noting also that the broker dealers act much worse than banks, uh, pure banks. In any event, this is a comparative chart since the COVID peak. And what you're essentially seeing is that financials, XLF, have been slight underperformers, but look at the difference between the two lines. The yellow line, of course, is the S&P and the other is the XLF. So you've been underperforming since the COVID peak with more variability, which is a more volatility. So still risk adjusted, not a great place over the past two years. It's interesting. I look at this chart and the only time, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the only time they've sort of converged is when rates were at their highest. That was back, you know, March, April-ish. Right. And that's when the S&P started coming off. The the financial started doing well. We're starting to see similar now. I guess the question is, you know, is this just a matter of time before the financials outperform the the S&P? Right. Well, they're doing it again of late. If you can see the two lines, right, the yellow line hooking down and the the blue line hooking up. And that's just a function of the recent 
move in rates. I guess the interesting thing is this, and, and you guys were talking about it, rates right now at essentially 1.79 are exactly where they closed in the first quarter last year, March 30, 1.79 and 1.79 now. And yet a year later, where's the S&P? S&P's 14% higher from where it was in March of last year. So the question is, does the S&P have some give back potential? The thinking is yes. Yeah, so Carter, let's look at the XLF individually. That's the ETF that obviously tracks most of those banks, the money centers, and the broker dealers that you mentioned. The problem that I have with the XLF is that the largest component is Berkshire Hathaway, and it has a, a heck of a move over the last couple months or so. But that is a really great looking chart. You see that kind of base. It's been trending, you know, from the bottom left to the upper right, really just since the the spring and the summer. Here it hasn't made a whole heck of a lot of progress. You mentioned that underperformance. What's your take on an absolute basis here as we head? into earnings this week and really they should be done for the most part as far as banks are concerned or at least the largest components by the end of next week yeah nice segue from last week as you recall berkshire uh for the breakout and capital one for the breakdown uh, and, and berkshire is acting very well maybe for different reasons it's it's defensive but if you look at if you were to compare this xlf which has got insurers in it and berkshire and other things like that you know, Progressive and Travelers, Affleck, which act well. The BKX doesn't act as well, and JP Morgan even worse. My hunch is that it's in an uptrend, to be sure, but there's not the upside potential that would be implied in that chart. I know you like to toggle, as they say. I think you brought another one with with us here just to take a look at. I love when you say, let's just toggle back and forth. I get a kick <laughs> no, out well, of that. There we go. There we go. Yeah. You see, because <laughs> that helps you. It's the all of life is the before and after, right? <laughs> so that's the long term. And what do we know? We get back to the peak before the financial crisis and we back away from it and then we break out above it. But is, is the move itself, it's a definitive breakout, is it maybe a little overdone? That's on a longer term basis, my thought. Let's take a look at JP Morgan here because obviously, I mean, you you know, Dan mentioned that Berkshire Hathaway, the biggest component, but the second biggest component in the XLF is, in fact, J.P. Morgan, I think at around 12 percent or thereabouts. You know, pretty well-defined range we're in here for the last seven or eight months, sort of going sideways. The question is, and I know this is what the chart suggests, is just just building a base for the next leg higher. Or are we going to finally break that uptrend line? Right. So that is what the chart suggests, except what I did was leave off any arrows for a reason. And that is a very handsome fact set chart. Look at those the dark blue and the colors. I mean, I like it. In any event, I don't think it does break out. My hunch is it just stays stuck in this range. And how long just before Dan gets in? You know, those lines are going to converge. At a certain point, something's got to give, as, as the movie suggests. I mean, we have time, I guess, for the sideways action. But, you know, we're coming to some sort of capitulation one way or another. That's right. You're within, and often it comes when earnings, right? So let's say the earnings are good and somehow it pops. I would say it goes right to that upper line and stops. And then in the event that it's weak, we're going to reapproach it. And one could say, well, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard. He said, if the earnings are good, it goes up. And if they're bad, they go down. Sometimes it's as simple as that. And the betting is, though, that it's not really going to break out or break down. It's kind of fair money, dull money. It's a pair of twos. Yeah, well, you know, Carter, you and I and Guy have been talking about this. We've been trying to game these guys. Guy seems surprised that we have earnings every three months. He's been doing it on Fast Money for 15 years. The show is going to actually have its 15-year 
anniversary this week. I think you've been on it at least, you know, at least 10 since you and I've been doing it a bunch for the last decade or so. And, you know, one of the things we'll often say is that when you have these parabolic moves into events like earnings, it can be a really treacherous setup. A lot of the enthusiasm is already there. Is that what you're kind of expecting over the next couple of weeks as all the bank stocks are going to start reporting? Yeah, I, I think a lot's priced in. One of the things we know is that a big move going into earnings is sometimes a foreshadow for a really good beat and the stock goes even further. And yet often it's all cannibalized that the move, and I think that's the risk here, that the move that precedes these bank earnings is enough to suggest that while they might be good, we shall see that it's priced in. Yeah, well, listen, you know, that's a whole heck of a lot of funny mentals, as you call them, married with the technicals when you get Guy and me weighing in here. But this next segment we call Break Out and Break Down. We love this one. You kind of just referenced what we talked about last week, the Berkshire Hathaway playing for the breakout, and you kind of nailed that. And COF on the other side has been weak. So this is going to be a really interesting one. You know, we have seen industrials early this year, and you kind of mentioned it. Some of these cyclical names have really caught a bid here, and UPS is one of them. Let's talk about the technical setup. And I'd love to get Guy's fundamental take on after that, because that is one good looking chart. It is a good looking chart. And to be fair, you'll see here is that it's very similar to the lines that can be drawn and were drawn for J.P. Morgan. So one could say, well, but you put an arrow here. That part's the subjective part, right? At some point, it gets down to judgment. Judgment is the critical faculty. My judgment could be wrong, but it is that UPS does break out and move above those highs, whereas J.P. Morgan, I don't think it will. So uh, lines are clear, the, the levels are precise, now you make your bets. Yeah, and UPS has been a monster, completely outperforming FedEx. Valuation, it's more expensive than FedEx, but still trades at less than a market multiple at 17 times next year's numbers. I think they report in the beginning of February, February 1st, if I'm not mistaken, we'll see. Now you get through sort of this 220 level, which was the prior high, And you have to believe it's going to continue to rally the rest of the month, broader market notwithstanding. That breakdown, sort of the Tom Petty angle, as opposed to the Clearasol part of our show, is now URI, which is also very interesting. Right. So in industrial and different capacity. But what we have here, and I try to make the lines very similar because it's, it's about showing circumstances that are similar that ultimately are diverging. And so it's respecting trend. And it's respecting changes in trend or the prospect of a change in trend. So we have a trend line, just as did for UPS, but we have a break in trend. So relative strength is poor, the opposite of UPS. We have broken trend, the opposite of UPS. And my thinking is that this is a better bet to the downside, a better sale than a buy. Yeah, so this is a really interesting setup. When you look at the fact that this stock broke out, you know, a few months ago and had that kind of what would you call it, just that massive reversal on news. It must have been in around its earnings in a way, and it's just really underperformed. It's an underperformed, obviously the S and P five hundred, many of its cyclical and industrial peers here. And you know, Carter, this is where you know I take a look and I say, well. Current Wall Street consensus is calling for like 20% earnings growth on 10% sales growth this year. And the stock trades at about 13 times, well below a market multiple, well below many of its peers. And I say to myself, either the consensus is wrong here, right? It's just going to be not nearly as high, making the stock look more expensive. And the price action is really bad. When you identify a breakdown like this, you already have a break of that trend. You have relative underperformance here. You know, we're getting close to, I don't know, you know, we, we might be from 400 to 300 very quickly. It, that double bottom from the, 
summer, would that be where you'd look to take profits in this sort of trade? Yeah. The first thing I think, and, and before addressing that, and that's exactly right, is the magnitude of the advance. We're talking about something that went from 50 from its COVID low to 400, right? So blowing away literally any other industrial or most. And so with excess like that, the question is, is the give back so far enough? And I would say no. And so now you get into levels, uh, Dan, that you're citing. And at those levels, back to sort of you know sub 300, then we can consider maybe oversold. But it's a clear trend. I mean, look at that. It hit that line over and over and over. Yep. And it's a clear break in trend. And again, having come from 50 to 400, I would not step in here. All right. So Carter, let's get this one for the road here. We only got a couple minutes and obviously it is Bitcoin and Ethereum here. And you look at Bitcoin, we have a one-year chart and the thing shows just this very volatile one-year range. I saw a tweet yesterday where somebody, I think it was in jest saying, hey, for all you people who don't think that Bitcoin is stable, it's trading at the exact same price it was a year ago, meaning that it's stable. But you look at that volatility and you look just since the all-time high, since a new all-time high in early November, it's now down 40%. It's kind of in this no man's land, if you will. You see that if it were to break that cluster from earlier in the summer where it took off a little bit or early in the fall, there's a whole heck of a lot of room down towards 30,000. What's your take real quickly here? Sure. I saw a tweet that said, you know, at this point, I'm just going to take off all the lines and ride this thing blind. <laughs> the point is that, it, look, it, this is not for the faint of heart, right? Great uh, surges, great collapses, attempts to break out and fails. It's under pressure. There is a well-defined trend line on the arithmetic chart that's in effect now on a two, three-year chart. It's a pretty critical juncture because breaking here, and it's a quick swoosh to that green line you've drawn. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the one. I mean, that's where it bounced. And I think, you know, a lot of long-term holders might be welcoming that sort of move in the near term. They use these opportunities to kind of load up here and they probably are not piling in when it's making new highs. The last one where we'll just look at really quickly, and you and I have talked about this over the last few months, Ethereum was showing very good relative strength to Bitcoin. You see that one year uptrend. It's a good bit lower down there near 2,500 or so. You know, my take is that this is the one that a lot of the tinkerers in the crypto space, a lot of newbies to the space, for whatever reason, I think they prefer something that's trading around 3000 or maybe as low as 2500 even though you don't have to buy a whole coin. What is your take on Ethereum here? And if it were to go down another 10, 15% towards that uptrend, might it be a good level to step in? I know that's a level that I'm kind of eyeing here. Yeah. And you refer to it as a good bit lower and it is. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah, you get it down to the green line, take a nibble. The question really is, and for those who are in the pairs business, is Ethereum better than Bitcoin? I still think that's the smart play. It's interesting. 5,000 to 3,000. You just talk about not for the faint of heart. None of these in the faint of heart. I thought 31,000 in Bitcoin for some reason for a while. I'll stand by that. Not that I know anything, but it just seems like a logical landing spot. But, you know, we put 30 minutes on the clock. We're 32 in. So it's time to say goodbye, Dan. Any parting thoughts? Yeah, I mean, listen, you know, we talk about markets every day and, you know, well, the three of us have been doing this for decades now. And, you know, periods like this usually present opportunities. And I think it's really important to remember without getting too hyperbolic. Yeah, there's some pretty nasty action going on in different parts of the stock market, but it doesn't always make sense to extrapolate that to everything you're looking at. So to me, you know, kind of keep ahead. I, you know, Carter laid out two different ways of doing it. It's so bad, it's good or stick to the stuff that you know is going to show relative bank or relative strength. 
Frank, I like what he's thinking about as a barbell approach. Get your buy list ready because some of the stuff that's been beaten up is going to get uglier. And some of the things that you love the most, the most defensive, the ones that you have, you know, the best outlook for, they can get overdone in the near term too. So you want to probably barbell it as Carter suggested. We shouldn't thank Carter for being with us because Carter's going to be with us every Monday. So just welcome again, Carter Braxenworth. And if you're not following Carter on Twitter, you're doing Twitter wrong. Follow him at Carter B. Worth. And thank you for tuning in to Market Call Charts. Today's episode was brought to you by our presenting sponsors, FactSet, financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow. And of course, Open Exchange, because as we all know, Dan, they manage virtual winnings that matter for the top companies around the world. If you like what you saw, be sure to tune in every Monday at 11 a.m. Dan and I will be back tomorrow for Market Call Macro. We'll break down the broad markets through the lens of futures later. We'll see you then.